Holocaust survivor Leo Bretholtz led the campaign to force French state-owned train company, SNCF, to pay reparations before making contracts in the United States. Only a few days before he was expected to appear before the Maryland House of Delegates for a pivotal hearing, he passed away at age 93. His friends are carrying on the work. This is Covering Their Tracks, the extraordinary story of a global corporation's denial of its history and how storytelling can be used to confront the past and achieve justice. I'm Matthew Slutsky. This is Episode 5, Leap into Darkness. After Leo Bretholtz's death, attorney Rafi Prober found it hard to see a way forward on the SNCF case. The next day, I remember vividly where I was in my house. I was sitting in my bed, and I was on the phone with Rosette Goldstein. You remember Rosette Goldstein from a couple episodes ago. She was another Holocaust survivor who was hidden as a child in France. Her father was put on an SNCF train and transported to Auschwitz, then to Buchenwald, where he was killed. We were crying, and we were bawling, and we were laughing, and we were telling stories, and... Toward the end of the conversation, I said, Rosette, I don't know what to do. The hearing is supposed to be tomorrow in the Maryland legislature, and Leo was supposed to testify. I don't think we can do it. I think we have to postpone. It was as if I had offended her, and like a switch went off, and she stopped crying. She said, wait, what? What are you talking about? Leo would kill you if he heard you say that. And she was right. She was 100% right. And I said, but I I can't envision how we do this without him. She said, out of respect for him, we need to keep pushing this forward and we need to get this done. I am getting on a plane this afternoon and I'm going to expect you to pick me up at the airport and I will be there on Monday to testify. For so many years, Rosette had been part of the team but it was Leo who was often out in front. Now, it was on her to be the voice of the survivors. It was hard because I was on the plane and I was trying to write, you know, what I was going to say, which I don't know if that's a good idea sometimes. I think you're better speaking from the heart. When the time came, Rosette was ready. We have memories that haunt us and will haunt us to our dying day. They took 76,000 souls. And they made money on them. They were paid per head and per kilometer. And they instructed their employees on how to close the doors. They instructed their employees on how to push people in so that they would get as many people as possible. And now they tried to change history. Rosette's testimony demonstrated to everyone in the room that Leo's death would not slow down their efforts. They told the Maryland state lawmakers they do not want SNCF or their American subsidiary, Keolis, to profit from taxpayer money without paying reparations. The reparations bill that Rosette testified for in the Maryland Senate ultimately failed. But, like with the hearings in California, 
and in Congress, the media attention surrounding it gave the survivors momentum. The battle had moved from individual victims and their lawyers and into the realm of geopolitics, with the French government and the U.S. State Department front and center. Prober, Taman, and their co-counsels pulled all the levers they could behind the scenes. But this was now between France and the United States, the latter represented by Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt and his team. We weren't espousing the claims of individual Americans, but we felt a obligation to Americans, as well as to Israelis and others who were not French, to get them the maximum possible compensation for the hell they had gone through. By being deported, the Germans hoped to their death. At this point, the French wanted to limit their exposure. Their initial proposal covered only a small number of people and didn't offer much money. As we heard last episode, Eisenstadt had convinced the French to go further to compensate family members who stood in the shoes of survivors who had died. But according to Eisenstadt, Harriet Taman wanted even more compensation from the French. I mean, the numbers would have become unmanageable if we had a broader category. They wanted 20 million first, they were stuck at 40 million, their final offer was 50 million, and I said, no, we have to have 60 million. Getting to that was unbelievably difficult. So you just have to get what I call imperfect justice and settle for the most you can get. But from Taman's perspective, I think one of the things that the French wanted to do was make sure that Americans weren't treated any better than they had treated their own citizens. I just, in the end, said, Harriet, I've done everything I humanly can. We've covered people who would never have been covered, who weren't covered under the French program. We've stretched this as much as we can without it breaking. After decades of extraordinary efforts by survivors like Leo and Rosette and seven rounds of negotiations spanning multiple years, the two parties reached an agreement. For the SNCF's part in transporting more than 76,000 Jews while France was under Nazi occupation, France would establish a $60 million reparations fund. A settlement was ready to be signed. Here's Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt from the State Department's Treaty Room on Friday, December 8th, 2014. It's a very auspicious uh, occasion, and I'm really honored to be here. We gather for marking another measure of belated and imperfect justice, but justice nevertheless for the horrors of one of history's darkest eras. The United States and France have reached an agreement that will provide compensation for victims of deportation during the Holocaust. French human rights ambassador Patriciana Sparacino Thiele spoke on behalf of the French government. This important agreement marks, in both symbolic and concrete terms, a new and crucial stage in the commitment made by the French authorities to Holocaust victims. This agreement sought to achieve, and I believe achieved, three main objectives we were jointly looking for, responsibility, memory, and justice. 
The settlement at the heart of this story was as historic as it was unlikely. When it comes to crimes as atrocious as the ones committed during the Holocaust, there's simply no amount of money that can bring the victims back to life or make the pain of their murders any less agonizing. Perfect justice doesn't exist, even for $60 million. Here's Rafi Prober. There was never going to be any settlement that addressed what actually happened. So by definition, anything was going to fall short of that. Ambassador Eisenstadt wasn't under any illusions that his deal was perfect either. You always realize at the end of the day, however much you can recover, it's never enough. How about those who were killed? How about the heirs of those who were killed? So you're always left with a feeling of inadequacy about it. Nevertheless, this money made a crucial difference for a lot of people in their final years. Some survivors in their 90s were finally able to pay for around-the-clock medical care. That said, Harriet Taman thinks the final deal was too restrictive. She continues to fight for some of the claimants to this day. I'm so happy for those people. But I'm happy for one-third and I'm heartbroken for two-thirds. You know, as lawyers, we don't always get to be on the side of the angels. And in this lawsuit, we are on the side of the angels. This is a list of our clients. These are people who contacted us because they or their parents or other family members were on the trains and deported to Auschwitz or Buchenwald. It sits in my mind and in my heart. Rachel, Brookline, Massachusetts. Dora, Paris. Robert, Paris. Raymond, Brooklyn. Charlotte, Phoenix. Marie, New York. Juliet, Paris. Sylvain, Brussels. Paulette, Marseille. Rafi Prober had been fighting this fight for years. Now, almost a decade after the agreement, you can still hear how much this achievement meant. There are certain moments in your life where you sort of picture yourself like an out-of-body experience, um, and that was one of them. And, you know, it was, it was one of the proudest moments of my life, and I imagine um, it won't be eclipsed anytime soon. And yet, Leo wasn't there. Yeah. Yeah, and I actually... He wasn't there, but he was. I mean, he, he, was, he was in the room. He was part of the speeches. None of this would have happened without him. I mean, he was not physically there, but he was there, and he was talked about. We laughed, we told stories. It felt like he was there. He got us there. I'm thinking now specifically of the family of Leo Bretholtz of Maryland, who died at the age of 93 only a few months ago, and who did so much to raise the level of visibility of this issue. While he is not here to recover, 
under the innovative process of this agreement, his family will. And so the agreement went into effect. History was made. Those who qualified for payments received them. The diplomats had accomplished the task they had set out to complete. Beyond providing compensation, the SNCF saga encouraged the French to acknowledge their role in the war. But atonement is a long road. In the years following the agreement, extremism and anti-Semitism continued to fester in France. And so Emmanuel Macron, three months after defeating far-right candidate Marine Le Pen for the French presidency in 2017, delivered a speech that not only embraced the spirit of the SNCF agreement, but also looked directly at the country's tarnished past. Through a translator, Macron explained. Alors oui, je le redis ici. I will say this here. It is France that organized the roundup, subsequent deportation, and consequently for almost all of them, the death of the 13,152 French Jews dragged from their homes on 16th and 17th July 1942. President Macron wasn't apologizing specifically on behalf of the SNCF, but for something much broader he was taking ownership of France's complicity with the Nazis. More than 8,000 were taken to the Veldiv before getting deported to Auschwitz. Among them were 4,150 children aged between 2 and 16 years, whose memory we are today honoring most particularly and for whom I would like us to observe a minute silence. President Macron delivered the speech on the 75th anniversary of the Valdiv Roundup on July 18, 2017, three years after Leo's death and the SNCF settlement. Je sais tous ceux qui diront I know that there are those who will say the days like today and words like those that I just pronounced are a reminder of the humiliation of our country and that it is an indecent repentance. None of that is true. This is an essential act of remembrance in history. It is our responsibility, our responsibility to completely reconcile our people, even the darkest pages of our history so that everyone can at last find a place. By acknowledging its faults, France has opened the way to repairing them. That is, to its honor. The idea that Vichy was a mere parenthesis, opened in 1940 and closed in 1945, supports a high idea that some have of France. It is easy to view Vichy as a monstrosity that grew out of nothing and returned to nothingness. To believe that these people came out of nowhere and received just punishment at the liberation, that eliminated them from the national community. It is easy, so easy, but it is wrong. And no pride can be built on a lie. 
too many people think that the recognition of the historical mistakes that we have made as a country, as a government, as people, weakens the country, you know? I do think exactly the contrary. That's Sylvain Faure. He was the head of communication for Macron's 2017 election, and he wrote Macron's speech. How many trials you have where people have lost a daughter or a child or something that's been murdered? The only thing that they want is the murderer to admit it. It's exactly the same for a country. You weaken a country where you don't recognize your crimes. You weaken your society and you weaken your culture and you weaken your very identity. So this speech goes also, is also a message to the new generation saying, look, maybe you would think at some point that you don't have racist or anti-Semitic ministers, that your government is not like that. You're not like that. But please be careful. You have to detect and to feel and to be aware that many, many signs, many signals in the society, in the culture, make this present. And what happened in 40 to 45 in France was not just, you know, unfortunate. It was also rooted in the very culture of many, many parts of our intellectual landscape, political landscape, theoretical landscape. The speech was incredibly important, not just because President Macron took responsibility for France's role during World War II far more forcefully than any French president had done before. It was important because he spoke for a generation ready to confront its history in a way its predecessors hadn't. Think back to episode one, where we talked about the French film La Bataille du Rai, which premiered right after the war and sought to reframe France's role in the Holocaust. It was largely propaganda and mostly untrue. In 2010, a new film was released, this one far more honest about France's capitulation to the Nazis. It was called La Rafla, or the Roundup. The film depicted thousands of innocent Jews and others being herded into the Valdives without food or water, awaiting their ultimate deportation to death camps. This story was similar to Leo's. Like Bataille Durai, the roundup shot to number one at the French box office. But this time, the story was honest. It was difficult, it was challenging, it was necessary, and it was about time. Another result of the SNCF case was that other corporations and countries took notice. In 2019, the Dutch National Railway Company, NS, agreed to start a compensation fund of $74 million after seeing how things had transpired for the French. Prober describes the connection between the two. On the Dutch rail case, they proactively addressed the issue and entered into an agreement. And one of the statements from a senior executive basically said, we were watching closely and saw what happened with SNCF and... We have no interest in doing that.
I've come to realize that when you're dealing with something as horrific as the Holocaust, time needs to pass before people can begin to process what occurred and to tell their own stories. But the more time passes, the more survivors we lose. Who will tell the survivors' stories when they're all gone? In Judaism, the idea of retelling our history is just ingrained in tradition. We tell the story of the exodus from Egypt each year at Passover. We tell the tale of the defiant Maccabees at Hanukkah, who refused to worship any god but their own. And we ultimately rely on our own descendants to remember what happened in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. During one of my interviews with Rafi Prober, his son Zach walked into the room. I asked him what he knew about his dad's work. He was 12, a few months shy of his bar mitzvah. But he understood the importance of this idea of Lador Vador, or from generation to generation, and what it means to honor the stories of the past. It's amazing, and that's why we need to retell the story, because soon we won't have people like her to keep telling it. So it's such a big thing in history. We don't retell it. People are going to forget about it. We can't forget. We have to face really hard things about our collective past in order to move forward. As President Macron said, no pride can be built on a lie. When I first heard the title of Leo's book, Leap Into Darkness, the darkness felt so literal. It was nighttime, and he was making a daring escape. Now, after coming to understand how Leo fits into the lineage of storytellers that have defined generations of Jewish culture, I better understand what this darkness may have been all about. Leo was 21 years old and escaped certain death by leaping off a train and back into a society that was trying to exterminate him. His world at the time was consumed by darkness, and that darkness was trying to swallow him whole. While the Holocaust was, in many ways, a singular, horrific event, that darkness, that proclivity to see people as less than human, is by no means relegated to one moment in our history. In some ways, things have improved. As we record this, the son of a Jewish man is poised to become prime minister of France. But darkness has always loomed. In 2006, Ilan Halimi, a young Parisian Jewish man, was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered by a gang that believed all Jews were rich and Halimi wouldn't pay them off. In 2015, a gunman entered the kosher supermarket, Iper Kasher, and murdered four Jews, holding 15 more hostage. In 2017, Sarah Halimi, unrelated, was killed by a man who shouted, Allahu Akbar, the assailant was acquitted when the judges ruled that cannabis consumption was to blame. And the list goes on. Obviously, the United States has had its share of Jewish hate. Jews make up less than 3% of the U.S. population, but are victims of more than half of all religious hate crimes. In 2018, 11 people, including Holocaust survivors, were massacred at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue Three more were killed in the 2019 shooting in a kosher supermarket in Jersey City. Five people were stabbed by a masked man in 2019 while celebrating Hanukkah 
at a rabbi's home. Like in France, this list goes on as well. In May of 2023, President Biden recognized how acute this epidemic of anti-Semitism and violence against Jews had become, adopting for the first time in U.S. history a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. Which brings us to October 7th, 2023. We were wrapping production on this series as the terrible pogrom unfolded there. It is a horrific, relevant testament to how vulnerable Jews remain throughout the world and a moment when the rampant anti-Semitism that exists today has been laid bare. And this is why we continue to tell stories like that of Leo Bretholtz. Elie Wiesel once said, God made man because he loved stories. The story of this series would not exist if Leo hadn't told his own. We guarantee that never again means something by continuing that storytelling tradition. Which brings me right back to Leo and his daughter Edie and everyone else who you've met in this podcast. As I got to know Edie, it became clear to me that there was so much she still didn't know about him. So one afternoon, Edie, Rosette, Rafi, and I sat down at Edie's tidy kitchen table along with a big book of photographs that Rafi and Rosette had brought to show her. And they did the very thing that I think would have made Leo most proud. They told stories and remembered. And we should all be listening. I didn't even know he was testifying until a couple of years into it. It's like just some other, other activity he was involved in. And then when he told me, I said, how come you didn't tell us about this? He didn't this? talk about it? No, he just, you know, my mother said, you know, we're going to D.C. And I said, for what? And he said, oh, for the testimonies. I didn't find out he was writing a book till he was like several months into it. And he mentioned his book. And I said, what book? <laughs> so he just, I guess he just forgot to mention things. We did something good. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> There's no question. We all did. The people that were on those trains... Like your dad, mm-hmm. were in their nineties. Yeah, many of them really needed the money, mm-hmm. but also not only the money. And I think that was your dad. The reason that he did that, he didn't do it for the money. He wanted an apology. I was reading articles and um, the New York Times obituary. I'm just pulling up this quote, and I read this line, which I had. I remember when he said this, and I remember, like, I can picture him saying it, but it meant so much more now, having read the Macron speech. He said, quote, all I want is a declaration, a forceful declaration of we did something very wrong, something inhumane, we sent people to their deaths. And finally, that's happened. It took a long time, but I, he really got exactly what he set out to do. And I mean, there's no greater honor that you and Leo could have done but to set the record straight on this after so many years. Mm -hmm. Leo, we did it. (laughs) I can see you smiling. Thank you. Covering Their Tracks was hosted, reported, and researched by me, Matthew Slutsky. The series was written and produced by Courtney Hazlett, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, 
Eric Meyerson, Megan Lubin, and Chris Gonzalez. Editing, engineering, and mixing by Eric Meyerson, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. Our theme song, Tall Grass, was composed and performed by Robert Berger. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you to Blue Chalk Media, including Greg Moyer, Pam Hewling, Julianne Sato-Parker, Amy Polanski, and Mariko Fujinaka. Head to our show notes for more information about Tablet Podcasts or visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Finally, a moment to express gratitude to my family for their love, support, and patience. My wife allowed me to record the first pass of this show in her closet. Don't worry, Patty. I dusted while I was in there. And kids, I hope you'll someday listen to this series too. Thanks for listening.